get the unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Wednesday, February the 28th, 2024. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, there's cautious optimism for a ceasefire in Gaza, with the U.S. president saying that a deal is close. Delegates at China's annual two-sessions meetings will be talking about new productive forces that drive innovation. Japan's again discharging nuclear-contaminated water from a damaged power plant into the Pacific Ocean. In business, a delegation from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is visiting Beijing. In sports, the final curtain on this year's China National Winter Games. In culture and entertainment, an updated version of a century-old book on the history of Taiwan. Now checking the day's top stories. There's cautious optimism about a ceasefire in Gaza after U.S. President Joe Biden said a ceasefire deal is close. But officials from Israel, Hamas and Qatar suggest differences still remain and may prevent inking an agreement. David Biller with the Associated Press has more from Jerusalem. We did have some optimistic comments coming from President Biden. He said on Monday, first of all, that Israel had agreed to suspend hostilities in Gaza during the month of Ramadan, which is going to start around March 10th. He also said in separate comments that he was hopeful a deal could be reached even by next week. At the same time, Qatar's foreign ministry's spokesperson said he was also uh, optimistic for a deal. Now. Despite these comments, both Israel and Hamas came out and threw a bit of cold water on, on that positivity. Uh, Israel said that Biden's remarks came as a surprise and definitely were not coordinated. Uh, a Hamas official said that it is not softening in its demands at all. And we know from Prime Minister Netanyahu's comments that those demands are what are preventing Israel from signing on to a deal. This deal that they're dis reportedly discussing, according to an Egyptian official involved in mediations, uh, would be the exchange of 40 hostages in Gaza for 300 Palestinian prisoners, as well as a six-week ceasefire, during which time much-needed aid trucks could get to residents. You know, we, we've seen a lot of trouble getting aid into Gaza. People are really struggling there, and the situation just grows more and more dire. The number of trucks getting in there has dropped. Both the UN and Oxfam have been warning of the consequences, uh, potential famine, people dying of starvation or malnutrition, dehydration. You know, what we saw, these airdrops from Jordan, United Arab Emirates, France and Egypt, it's not enough for the more than a million people who are in Rafa and other cities as well. But it reflects the desperation, both of the people on the ground who aren't getting enough food to eat, as well as the concern of the international community about what this growing crisis is going to look like. That was David Biller reporting from Jerusalem. Israelis have voted in twice-postponed municipal elections, which could offer a gauge of public sentiment on their country's military operations in Gaza. Sarah Coates has more from Tel Aviv. What they could really do here is reflect public sentiment on the way that the government is running, the way that the country, I should say, is running. And what we do need to take note of is when these polling booths were open, there were a number of major cities where there were very far right-wing candidates and also very religious candidates going up against more conservative or, I should say, uh, liberal candidates and also opponents 
to Netanyahu, people that have voiced criticism against the Prime Minister. So these are some of the things that we'll be looking at when the results do come out. There was also a notable absence, and that was Netanyahu himself. Normally he's pretty active in these sort of things, even if they are local elections. Another thing that was quite important was that they were held during wartime. What we've been hearing from the ruling Likud party is uh, about these calls for Netanyahu to step down. The Likud has been saying, no way, elections should never be held during wartime. All it would do would be hurt the country. But having these local elections actually does go to show that it can happen. So we can expect results, probably nothing too significant there for the Prime Minister. But as I said, it will potentially reflect public sentiment on a number of very sort of grassroots issues. That was Sarah Coates reporting from Tel Aviv. Demonstrators have taken to the streets in Tel Aviv, calling for an end to Israel's military campaign in Gaza. This comes as the number of Palestinians killed in Gaza since October the 7th is nudging closer to 30,000. We're here uh, in a solidarity demonstration, in a demonstration to tragically commemorate 30,000 casualties in Gaza Uh, and we're here on uh, municipal election day to emphasize that as uh, Israelis and part of Israeli society and citizens uh, we have a we have a choice Uh, we have a choice whether actively supporting it and we have a choice uh, supporting it in our silence. I'm here to call for ceasefire and to the end of the bombings in in the Gaza Strip Uh, I feel that there's nothing that justifies this uh, uh, vast killing of innocent people Um, and I think it doesn't help anyone. It's not going to bring security to us, to the region. It's not going to bring the hostages back. It's just senseless killing and soldiers are being killed as well and we call for the end of all this madness. In the meantime, a recent Israeli raid in the occupied West Bank has killed at least three people and wounded several others. Intense bombardment has also been reported in Rafah in the south of Gaza. The United Nations has warned of grave consequences facing people in Gaza as many of them have been stripped of access to aid. Spokesperson Jens Lerka with the UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs says the Israeli army hampered relief efforts when troops intercepted a WHO medical convoy in Gaza and detained a number of medical workers. The Israeli military forced patients and staff out of ambulances and stripped all paramedics of their clothes. Three Palestinian Red Crescent Society paramedics were subsequently detained, although their personal details had been shared with the Israeli forces in advance, while the rest of the convoy stayed in place for over seven hours. This is not an isolated incident. Eight convoys have come under fire and are systematically denied access to people in need. Humanitarian workers have been harassed, intimidated or detained by Israeli forces, and humanitarian infrastructure has been hit. The UN says at least a quarter of Gaza's population of over 2 million are on the verge of famine. Moscow has warned that the potential deployment of NATO troops to Ukraine would mean that a direct conflict between the military alliance and Russia would be inevitable. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov highlighted the seriousness of considering the deployment of NATO forces, calling it a very important new element. It is not in the interests of these countries, and they should be mindful. In that case of sending troops, we would need to talk not about the probability, but about the inevitability. 
Uh, on Monday, a French president, Emmanuel Macron, said that sending Western troops on the ground in Ukraine should not be ruled out in the future as Russia's military operation grinds into a third year. But NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said the military alliance has no plans to send combat troops into Ukraine. In the meantime, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has also publicly spoken out against Macron's idea. Of course, we also discussed how we should organize the support for Ukraine overall. And once again, in a very good debate, we discussed that what was established among ourselves from the start also goes for the future. Namely, that there will be no ground troops, no soldiers on Ukraine soil who are sent there by European states or NATO states, and that soldiers operating in our countries also are not participating actively in the war themselves. UK, Austria, Italy, Poland and many Central European leaders have echoed Germany's stance. Uh, the White House has also said there will be no US troops on the ground in Ukraine, not even in non-combat roles. Well, meantime, U.S. President Joe Biden's met the top four congressional leaders at the White House as they scramble to send military aid to foreign allies and avert a partial government shutdown at the end of the week. Leaders left the meeting in agreement that Congress should avoid the shutdown, but they appeared to remain divided on the funding uh, to Ukraine and on migrant issues. Nick Harper has more from Washington. Well, there were some positive words coming out of the back of this meeting. Optimism, optimistic. Those were the words that both Democrats and Republicans were using. The hope is that they will be able to get a deal done to keep the government funded before the deadline of midnight on Friday. If they don't achieve that, come Saturday, about 25% of the US government will no longer have funding to keep it going. Departments like Transport Department, the Energy Department, they will no longer be funded. Their workers will be working for free. Now, the hope is that they will be able to get this through, but there is a small group on the right of the Republican Party who are making some extreme demands. They want huge spending cuts. They want the Homeland Security Secretary's salary slashed to zero. They want the Biden administration to do away with a whole host of its climate agenda initiatives. Those are things that just don't have broad appeal and are unlikely to sway enough lawmakers to allow this to happen before the funding deadline passes. So there is a real fear that the government partial shutdown will happen as of Saturday morning, even though there is optimism on both sides that a deal could be done. The White House meeting also included a second uh, notice of agenda. This was the $95 billion defense spending package, getting new money to Ukraine to help it in its fight against Russia, new money to Israel to help it in its fight against Hamas. This is a bill that's already been passed by the Senate, but it hasn't yet been approved by the House of Representatives. The reason being, House Speaker Mike Johnson doesn't want to bring it to the floor of the House for a full vote because he doesn't think that Ukraine should get any more money. He's being pressurized by the former president, Donald Trump, who's really saying that that money should be spent on other things like border security, the US border with Mexico, rather than continuing to fund this foreign conflict. That was Nick Harper in Washington. Coming up, China's two sessions meetings will focus on productivity and innovation. Strengthening the foundation for a future powered by innovation, where high technology, high efficiency, and high quality converge. These three pillars are set to propel China's new productive forces and supercharge the Chinese economy into a new era of development.
new industries, new models, and new growth momentum. Join CGTN as we guide you through the new productive forces poised to redefine the Chinese economy. It's 12 minutes past the hour. New productive forces is expected to be a buzzword on the agenda of this year's two sessions. In short, the term refers to upgraded productivity driven by technological innovation. China's Hualong One unit has been a part of that effort. The domestically developed nuclear power technology has been bolstering energy infrastructure and advancing green development at home and abroad. Zhang Yibing has more. China is building Hualong One power units in batch following its successful commercial launch three years ago. Hualong One features the latest safety measures. It is becoming a new productive force for improving the energy infrastructure in China and larger areas. The chairman of China National Nuclear Engineering Corporation says the first Hualong units in China and Pakistan are operating successfully and plans are now underway to build an additional five units in China. Hualong One represents a collaborative effort at innovation. Thousands of companies in the industrial chain have been united in research and development to make technological breakthroughs. Xu Pengfei says one of the key features of Hualong One is it's developed with the digital transformation in mind and features smarter features with a safer operating system. In the next two years, new power units are set to be delivered with a more comprehensive digital design. Staff say the unit has completed the very first phase of its commercial operations and they're pursuing excellence in operational safety to meet assessments by the World Association of Nuclear Operators known as VONL. The power units are key to shaping the nation's energy landscape and advancing green development goals. Each Hualong One unit boasts an installed capacity of more than 1.1 million kilowatts, generating nearly 10 billion kilowatts of electricity annually, equivalent to the production and demand of 1 million people in medium-sized developed countries. This translates to annual reductions in standard coal consumption by more than 3.1 million tons and carbon emissions by over 8.1 million. And Hualong One units are also becoming part of an integrated plan for green energy. That was Zhang Yibing reporting. China's gearing up for its annual two sessions meetings due to open next week. On Tuesday, the Standing Committee of the 14th National People's Congress concluded a session in Beijing. Lawmakers approved the committee's work report, which will be delivered to the top legislature's annual meeting next week. The two sessions refers to the annual gathering of the uh, National People's Congress, China's top legislature, and that of the National Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is China's top political advisory body. Cao Chufeng spoke with NPC Deputy Yang Donghui as a school teacher, Young is planning to submit suggestions on the development of highly skilled talents. Born in 1997, Yang Donghui is one of the youngest deputies in the National People's Congress, or NPC, from Guangdong province. After winning a gold medal at the World Skills Competition, he became a teacher at Guangdong Machinery Technician College. He says he can feel China is paying much attention to cultivating skilled talents. In recent years, the state has closely monitored the development of highly skilled talent. There's a desire for outstanding talents to become members of the CPPCC or MPC deputies, advocating more effectively for skilled talents. MPC deputies serve in part-time roles. 
and come from diverse backgrounds. Part of their responsibility involves hearing the voices of people from all walks of life, submitting recommendations based on the concerns they hear. My profession involves cultivating highly skilled talents. I naturally get to know the different challenges present in the sector. Other teachers also provide me with diverse opinions and suggestions. My role is to listen to these suggestions, compile them into recommendations, and ultimately submit them to the MPC. China's vocational education law says that vocational education is as important as general education, and the country will drive the development of both in a unified manner. But Yang Lehui's experience tells him there is still room for improvement in the vocational education sector, and he plans to write down his suggestions on this subject for this year's two sessions. General education and vocational education are two tracks in China, and these two tracks do not often merge. Those who understand technical areas may not necessarily have hands-on practical skills, while those who excel in practical skills may not necessarily process theoretical knowledge. I hope we can develop a national-level platform that integrates these two tracks to cultivate individuals who are knowledgeable, skilled, and innovative. China believes cultivating technical talents is important to helping the country achieve its high-quality development goals. Official statistics in 2023 states that medium to higher-level vocational schools annually produce around 10 million highly skilled talents. That was Cao Chufeng on an NP- NPC deputy's proposals on vocational training. Coming up, Japan is again dumping contaminated water from a nuclear facility into the Pacific Ocean. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platforms, and get ready to dive in. At 18 minutes past the hour. Well, Japan's again releasing treated nuclear-contaminated wastewater, wastewater from the crippled Fukushima power plant. The plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, says they'll dump around 7,800 tons into the Pacific over the next two weeks. Here's Chris Gilbert in Tokyo. Well, the past discharges have been largely the same as this: about 7,800 tons of water being released. It's going to take about 17 days, just like previous discharges. There is one point of difference, though, that should be mentioned: is that、uh, unlike the previous three discharges,、uh, Tibco is not going to、uh, do a final. Check for tritium. That's the radionuclide that、uh, cannot be extracted from the water, so it's diluted with about a thousand times as much seawater. Usually, they put all that mixture in a tank right before it's discharged. They test it for tritium, and then they、uh, release it into the ocean if they're satisfied that the water is safe. They're not going to do that anymore. They're going to test it as it is being released every day. A sample of that released water. They're also going to sample、uh, the the seawater. About three kilometers offshore from the plant, every day during the 17 days, and、uh, for a week after the discharge finishes. After that, now in terms of public reaction, here people in Tokyo、uh, are really going about their everyday lives. It's a much different world.、Uh, about you know 100 or so kilometers up the coast in Tohoku, where I was a week or two ago. 
people there uh, are le- uh, say that they are uh, having to live alongside this ongoing cleanup, this ongoing disaster, that they have to uh, consolidate their lack of trust with TEPCO with the reality that they kind of have to trust the reassurances of TEPCO because it's their home, it's where they live and they're not leaving. And so it is kind of a weariness that people are expressing up there, uh, a hope that their lives can improve, but also, uh, you know, a concern they had to pass this on to future generations. That was Chris Gilbert reporting. Uh, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol says the government will not compromise on its stand on medical reforms. Meanwhile, South Korean nurses have been given legal protection to perform some medical procedures normally conducted by doctors. This comes as about 9,000 trainee doctors have skipped work for uh, eight consecutive days in protest of a government plan to increase the number of medical students. Suman Yu reports from Seoul. Interns and resident doctors in South Korea have persisted in their strike, protesting against a proposed increase in medical school admissions. The South Korean government has issued an ultimatum cautioning that it may suspend the licenses of trainee doctors starting next month unless they resume their duties. The government is issuing a final appeal, acknowledging the gravity of the current situation. We will not hold trainee doctors accountable if they return to work by Thursday the 29th. The presidential office also reaffirmed on Sunday that it still believes 2,000 additional medical school students are necessary to address the doctor shortage. They firmly rejected the idea of reducing the quota in response to doctors' requests. While the government has issued an ultimatum to the striking trainee doctors, the medical community is not backing down from defending their rights. The Korean Doctors Association, having marched in front of the presidential office on Sunday, vowed to resist until the very end, using any means necessary if the government proceeds with the plan. It also conducts regular briefings to keep updated on their stance. Had the government prioritized dialogue over populist policies, the current crisis could have been averted. Now the task of managing medical institutions is at stake. Ju also criticized the second vice health minister Pang Min-su's warning of suspending doctors' licenses for a minimum of three months and emphasized that the suspension of medical license could have repercussions for doctors' future practices and for those seeking to work overseas. If medical licenses are suspended and legal proceedings initiated, it would sever all pathways for doctors to return to hospitals. The consequence could be the catastrophic collapse of the entire Korean healthcare system. The medical community's argument extends beyond concerns about the medical education quality. They also highlight potential surges in medical costs and the burden passed on to future generations. Even full-time doctors, whose contract ends this week, has hinted at participating in collective action. This means the next few days will be the cornerstone of this medical vacuum. In line with this, the Korean Medical Association plans a large-scale rally in Yeoido on March 3rd, uniting doctors from across the country. Despite the government's firm position, their urgent plea remains unchanged an immediate succession of the nationwide expansion of medical school admissions. Unfortunately, though, the current standoff shows no signs of abating. That was Suman Yu reporting. Well, climate experts at the ongoing UN Environment Assembly in Nairobi have called for nature-based solutions to address the global climate crisis. Daniel Aratmoy reports from Nairobi. Nature-based solutions are gaining momentum at the UN Environment Assembly. 
Kenya's First Lady Rachel Ruto urged delegates to draw inspiration from the natural world to address pressing environmental issues. Nature-based solutions hold tremendous potential for addressing the interconnected challenges we face. They offer us a pathway to mitigate climate change, conserve biodiversity, and achieve sustainable development. Nature-based solutions include avoiding emissions by restoring ecosystems and limiting deforestation. The reintroduction of native plant species, for example, would attract diverse wildlife and combat soil erosion. The proposals under discussion indicate a new direction being considered as nations unite to combat climate change. We need to right now focus on getting our financial incentives right so that nature can get better in balance, so that we can be in balance. And we do that by backing nature, by backing nature-based solutions, by sending positive energy to the negotiators. And I really look forward to hearing about the solutions that will be forthcoming from this assembly. This convergence is the only way for us to pave the way for a sustainable and a peaceful coexistence between ourselves and with nature. Delegates believe a natural approach will help enhance biodiversity and safeguard local habitats for future generations. According to the United Nations Environment Programme, nature-based solutions to the climate crisis could serve as a testimony to the creativity of environmentalists seeking to emulate and honour the wisdom of nature. Daniel Aratmoy reporting. And for more on the UN Environment Assembly, Pan Dung's interviewed Executive Director Inger Anderson at the United Nations Environment Programme. What outcomes are expecting from this year's UN Environment Assembly? So we have a number of resolutions that are on the docket, so to speak. Pollution is one. You know, how are we going to deal with air pollution? Seven million people die prematurely every year from air pollution. So how can we step up? I know that this is a global problem, but many countries, including China, are really leaning in and finding solutions to this problem. So how can we learn from each other and making sure? So pollution is one example, making sure that we will have uh, clean air. But there are other, uh, other uh, resolutions, for example, nature-based solutions. How can we invest in nature uh, so that nature can give us back? Uh, so how can we ensure that we have vibrant ecosystems? It's a little bit similar to the Chinese uh, redlining, where we have uh, you know, what you can do and how you can restore biodiversity. So there's a lot of emphasis on that, as well as a number of resolutions that deal with chemicals and mining. How can we ensure that we do the mining sustainably? Also circular economy, probably the last example I will mention. Today we take, we make and we waste. How can we be more circular about it? How can we ensure that the things we will now be wasting, we're not wasting, but we are reusing? What are some of the most thorny issues during the plenary session that are hampering multilateral efforts? And what could be the solutions? So it's always difficult if you have 193 dinner guests that they all should agree. Here we have 193 member states and they come with different realities, different priorities, different interests. But that's the beauty of multilateralism. How can we make sure that there's room for everybody? There's some that have a certain economic interests or certain political interests. But we need to accommodate us all because we live on this one planet that we share and uh, we need to find a way of, of working together. 
and that was Inger Anderson on tackling crises facing the environment. We're at 28 minutes past the hour. Beijing down to minus 3 on Wednesday evening. Thursday will be sunny, the high is 6. Nanchung's at 4 overnight, then a light rainfall in 8. Elsewhere in Asia, Islamabad's down to 8 degrees, then a slight rainfall in 20 on Thursday. Vientiane's at 24 overnight, then sunny in 35. But on Penn's down to 23 degrees. That's followed by overcast conditions in 35. In Africa, Nairobi will see a light rain with a high of 29 on Thursday. Kampala's at 20 overnight, then some rainfall on 25. Juba's down to 26 degrees, then cloudy and 41. And finally to Oceania, Port Vila's at 25 this evening, and then a slight rainfall with a high of 31 degrees Celsius on Thursday. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, uh, there's cautious optimism for a ceasefire in Gaza with the U.S. president saying that a deal is close. Delegates at China's annual two sessions meetings will be talking about new productive forces that drive innovation. And Japan's again discharging nuclear contaminated water from a damaged power plant into the Pacific Ocean. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. German Railway Company Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, 你好, or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了, there is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigel with you on this Wednesday. Still to come. In business, a delegation from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is visiting Beijing. In sports, final curtain on this year's China National Winter Games. In culture and entertainment, an updated version of a century-old book on the history of Taiwan. To contact us, you can email radio at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. First of all, with the day's headline news, here's Tian Lu. Thank you, Shane. China and Sierra Leone have pledged to strengthen their ties. Chinese President Xi Jinping held talks with Sierra Leone's President Julius Mandabio during his state visit to China. Both leaders expressed appreciation for the country's cooperation in economy and social development. The Chinese Foreign Ministry said the visit will inject new momentum into the comprehensive and in-depth development of bilateral ties. A spokesperson with the State Council's Taiwan Affairs Office says the mainland reserves the right to respond to the recent fatal boat collision near Kingman. 
Zhu Fenglian said Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party authorities have been unapologetic and even lied about what happened two weeks ago that led to the deaths of two mainland fishermen. She urged the Taiwan authorities to make public the truth as soon as possible. Meantime, Zhu also protested a recent U.S. arms sale to Taiwan. She called on the United States to cancel the deal and stick to the One China Principle and the Three China-U.S. communiques, which are the foundation for bilateral ties. U.S. authorities have announced that they are sending $75 million of military hardware to Taiwan. A Chinese envoy has urged the international community to take action to avert a more severe humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Dai Bing made a call Tuesday at the UN Security Council briefing on the food security risk in Gaza. The envoy stressed that people in Gaza require humanitarian assistance to ensure survival. He said the entry of humanitarian supplies into Gaza has faced many difficulties. Dai said Israel should facilitate humanitarian agencies to carry out assistance in Gaza. Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning says a Chinese envoy will carry out the second round of shuttle diplomacy on promoting a political settlement of the Ukraine crisis. Special Representative Li Hui of the Chinese government for Eurasian Affairs will visit Russia, EU headquarters, Poland, Ukraine, Germany and France starting from March the 2nd. The United Nations has warned that the recent escalation of hostilities across the Lebanon-Israel border put possible political and diplomatic solutions at risk. Continued hostilities and a slow mediation between both sides have hampered assistance to affected border villages. Israel has warned it will target Hezbollah even if it achieves a ceasefire in Gaza. Mexico has threatened to retaliate with tariffs on steel imports from the United States if its biggest trading partner imposed tariffs of its own. Earlier this month, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai raised concerns about surge in American steel and aluminium imports from Mexico, saying U.S. steel and aluminium tariffs could be reinstated. Mexican Economy Minister Raquel Buenrostro criticized Thai's remarks, saying the proposed tariffs are politically motivated and not good for commerce. What would legally proceed if the United States would apply tariffs is for Mexico to retaliate. This means we should put tariffs on them too on certain products that would have the same impact. That's why I say it's not in their interest. Such a situation is legally justified to act in reciprocity. The U.S. lifted tariffs on Mexican steel in 2019, but warned they could be reinstated to protect the U.S. industry if shipments from Mexico surged beyond a certain level. In a historic move, San Francisco has issued an official apology to the city's black community for decades of discrimination. The city's 11-member Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to approve a resolution apologizing to all African Americans for past racist policies. Supervisor Sherman Wharton said it's just the start of reparations for black residents and not the end. This historic resolution apologizes on behalf of San Francisco to the African American community and their descendants for decades of systemic and structural discrimination, targeted acts of violence, atrocities, as well as committing to the rectification and redress of past policies and misdeeds. We have much more work to do, but this apology most certainly 
is an important step. However, the resolution falls short of endorsing specific reparations proposed by the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. Those include a $5 million payment and guaranteed annual income of nearly $100,000 for eligible black adults. U.S. department store chain Macy's has announced a strategic plan to streamline operations and focus on its core business. The plan includes the closure of approximately 150 underperforming stores by 2026. The decision aims to allocate resources more effectively, allowing the company to focus on revitalizing and modernizing the remaining 350 locations. The Chinese capital city is planning to open a giant panda conservation base by 2025. The base will cover 133 hectares in a forest park in Beijing's Fangshan district in the southwest. The first phase of the base will be home to 40 giant pandas and other animals such as golden monkeys and red pandas. Upon completion, the base is expected to host 50 pandas in total. Thank you very much. That was Tian Lu with Headline News. This is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, a delegation from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is visiting Beijing. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world. 37 past now and turning to business, here's Wang Zihang. Thank you, Shane. The Chinese mainland markets closed lower on Wednesday as investors were waiting for signs of more policy support. Timothy Pope has more. The uh, Shanghai Composite Index lost about 1.9% in what was pretty choppy trade. The Shenzhen component was down uh, even more. It was down uh, about 2.4%. And this seems to be a mix of caution as uh, investors wait for uh, signs of more policy support from the government and uh, both for the markets and the economy. We did see uh, definitely some downward pressure on Chinese developer stocks. They were among the biggest losers in Shanghai. Even some of the, uh, the less indebted developers that we see on the Chinese mainland. Names like Evergrande, Gemdale, China Vanka, all of those were trading lower. That was Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index lost more than 1.5%. In Japan, the Nikkei almost re- remained almost flat. The Chinese Ministry of Commerce has reviewed the implementation of recently announced measures aimed at boosting foreign investment. Wednesday's roundtable elaborated on the 24 measures. These include improving the quality of foreign capital utilization with a focus on the service sector and fostering a market-oriented, law-based business environment. Data from the Commerce Ministry show that foreign direct investment into China reached 157 billion US dollars in 2023, a historically high level. Chinese Vice Commerce Minister Wang Xiaowen has met a delegation from the US Chamber of Commerce, which is visiting Beijing. The chamber says Chief Executive Suzanne Clark is also scheduled to meet other Chinese officials and American business executives during the trip. According to the Chinese General Administration of Customs, China-U.S. trade in goods fell 11% in dollar terms last year amid weakening global demand. U.S. businesses are cautiously optimistic about their investments in China. The latest report by the American Chamber of Commerce in South China says the majority of surveyed firms plan to continue investing in the country over the coming year. Huang Fei spoke with the president of the chamber and other cooperative executives to learn more about their plans and concerns. More than 180 companies from diverse industries took part in the survey, half of them American firms. 
76% of respondents say they plan to reinvest in China this year, a slight increase from the year before. But most companies are treading lightly, with only 3% planning investments exceeding 250 million U.S. dollars. In your view, what are the main concerns and caution among American firms? Well, the caution is the fact that uh, COVID did a lot of damage to the economy, to the supply chain, not just in China, but the world over. And of course, recovery from that is going to take some time. China's GDP model is changing. When we look at, uh, used to be exports were driver of the increase in the GDP. Today, uh, uh, consumer base, the bigger the market gets, the more opportunities for us, and therefore we want to make sure that we capture the market share. U.S. companies and manufacturers report the most contraction in revenue growth last year, many citing fears local competition as a major challenge. Despite this, they believe China still offers better overall returns on investment than global alternatives. Toilet care company Fluid Master's reinvestment in China is focused on automation. Right now we have a lot of Chinese talent. They have really skilled like engineering on the management side and also the skilled workers. And that is much more valuable than just pure labor. It's so easy for communication, so easy we can work together. All right, we cannot say that uh, very profitable in China, overall operation cost in China is very competitive still. U.S.-China relations are also weighing on business minds. But 44% of respondents expect bilateral relations to improve this year, a record high. Recent discussions between the U.S. Treasury and Chinese financial officials in Beijing covered issues such as financial stability and cross-border payments. And more talks are planned. Every $1 billion of U.S. investment translates into $180 billion dollars in new GDP each and every year once it's invested and we want them to continue to focus on increasing uh, foreign investment by opening more and more to the outside world and I think that's the policy of China will continue. China and the United States are working towards creating a more stable business environment. The Chinese Ministry of Commerce has set up regular channels for foreign businesses to share their feedback. New measures on promoting the private sector hope to create a more level playing field. With China's vast industrial infrastructure and consumer base, its commitment to boosting foreign investment is a positive sign for the global economy. That was Huang Fei reporting. The Ministry of Transport says China has made notable achievements in improving its transport infrastructure network and services in 2023. Fixed asset investment in the transport system totaled nearly 4 trillion yuan, or around 555 billion US dollars, last year. More than 2,770 kilometers of high speed railways were opened, and 7,000 kilometers of expressways were built or expanded. The country also added or improved 1,000 kilometers of shipping lanes. Meanwhile, China's commercial freight volume went up around 8% last year, which was an increase of nearly 17% from 20. Last year, the country's express delivery volume topped in the world for the 10th year in a row. The Mobile World Congress is now in full swing in Barcelona with almost 89,000 participants from countries across the world. The world's biggest connectivity event is showcasing various gadgets of the future with all eyes on AI, Ken Brown reports. The Mobile World Congress, where big tech comes to make a big statement. We're seeing electrical vertical takeoff flying vehicles, backflipping robot cyber dogs, invisible laptop screens, new phones and wearable releases, a big focus on artificial intelligence from industry giants like Microsoft and Google. 
but it's Chinese tech titans Xiaomi who have really stolen the show with their brand new electric car, the Xiaomi SU7. It goes 800 kilometers on a single charge and from zero to 100 in just 2.78 seconds. Bold, but Xiaomi says they became the planet's third biggest seller of mobile phones despite only being founded in 2010. So why can't we do the same with cars, they say. The MWC is also a launch pad for the latest gadgets. Highlights include the Xiaomi 14, the Honor Magic Pro 6, and this ZTE flip phone set to hit the market with a starting price of just 599 US dollars. Cool AI phone features are also grabbing attention, like Oppo's photo edit tool, which makes people disappear. Wearable tech is also making great advances like the Xiaomi bracelet and the Samsung Smart Ring. Experts say we might see a wave of wearables from smart necklaces to smart nose piercings. Barcelona was blown away by a concert with Chinese pianist Lang Lang, who played a virtual piano while his hologram played a real piano. Mesmerizing. That was Ken Brown reporting from the ongoing Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. The China Pavilion has made its debut at the ongoing 60th International Agricultural Fair in Paris, showcasing a diverse range of agricultural and intangible cultural heritage products. The pavilion, covering an area of over 200 square meters, hosts nearly 20 Chinese enterprises and institutions. We are delighted to be here. There are so many people here. I think it's a good platform for exchanging ideas with the French people. After years of efforts in poverty alleviation and rural revitalization, we have not only got rid of poverty, but also become well-off. Now we can bring our village products to France and introduce them to the French and European markets. A variety of agricultural offerings, including goji berries, millet and celery juice, are all on display at the fair. The pavilion has garnered widespread attention from French businesses and the public. Many French industry associations have emphasized China's significance as a key market for French agricultural and food products. The agriculture fair in Paris has attracted over 1,100 exhibitors from more than 30 countries and regions to welcome over 600,000 visitors. The Chinese Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development has requested that the local authorities make housing development plans for 2024 and the next year after that. The ministry is emphasizing the need for a precise assessment of the demand for affordable housing. China aims to provide 9 million units of affordable housing by the end of next year. According to local government estimates, over 5 million units are already available in the market. Thank you very much. That was Wang Zihang with Business. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, the final curtain on this year's China National Winter Games. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. 37 pass now, turning to sports. Here's Brandon Yates. Thank you, Shane. China's 14th National Winter Games in the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region has come to an end. The closing ceremony was held at a fully packed theater. 
a total of 35 delegations across the nation have participated in the Games, and 30 of them tallied medals. The next Games will be held in Liaoning Province in 2028. Its capital, Shenyang, will become the first Chinese city to host both the National Games and the National Winter Games. For many elite athletes, it has served as crucial preparation for the 2026 Milano Cortina Winter Olympics. The inaugural National Village Basketball Championship will tip off on March 22nd in Guizhou Province. Organizers say the champions will have the opportunity to play against NBA franchises in the US. The event has grown into a sensation and became a nationwide tournament in 2023. This year, the grassroots tournament has established regional competition areas across the country with an expanded format. The top three contestants of each region will advance to the next round of group matches. Ten teams will participate in the finals in November. The rural tournament made headlines in 2023, amassing 50 billion views across Chinese social media. In football, Manchester City's Erling Haaland netted five goals in his side's 6-2 thrashing of Luton Town in the FA Cup. Kevin De Bruyne chipped in with four assists as the defending champions reached the quarterfinals. City boss Pep Guardiola was full of praise for his side. Well, I think I think Erling needs needs a guy have the vision, the quality, you know, the generosity. So Kevin is the less selfish player in front of the goal. If he cannot score another one, he would do it. And and Erling and Kevin needs the movement from Erling. So, but of course, uh, we know how aggressive they are. And I think Stefan was amazing reading the long passes and not just with Erling, if not in the in the players in between. Liverpool is in action against Southampton and Reds manager Jurgen Klopp lamented the injuries plaguing his team. What I know is that Ryan is not available. Um, besides all the others who are not available. We'll see. We'll see. So we need miracles in a few in a few um, with a few players, so that's why I wanna don't want to rule out for too long. But it's touch and go with with a lot of players still with the boys who are not available for the weekend. Elsewhere, Chelsea plays Leeds, Manchester United faces Nottingham Forest and Wolves host Brighton. Brighton winger Kaoru Mitoma is set to miss the rest of the season. The Japan international is said to be struggling with a back injury. The winger missed his side's 1-1 draw with Everton with the back injury. Brighton has since confirmed Mitoma will now be ruled out for two to three months. Brighton is currently in seventh place in the Premier League as they look to secure European football for next season. Roberto De Zerbi's side are also in the last 16 of the Europa League, where they will play Roma next month. The Formula One season gets underway in Bahrain this weekend. There is new broadcasting tech, including super-fast drone camera footage. Defending world champion Max Verstappen says it is impressive. We've had a lot of the same shots you know, over the last few years. So I think now with these drones coming in, and especially this one being so fast as well, being able to, to keep up with the car, um, I think, you know, in some particular corners as well, it would be so cool that the drone is like fully following the car as close as possible. Um, so for sure, you know, it's going to be very interesting, um, you know, to finally be able to, to show that live to, to a lot of people. The Red Bull driver is the clear favorite to secure another world championship. The LA Clippers will face the Los Angeles Lakers without injured all-star Paul George. George will miss his second straight game due to left knee soreness. He will not practice this week and therefore will not be available against the Lakers. 
George was on the floor getting shots up at the practice facility before the team had its film session and practice. The All-Star played in back-to-back games against Oklahoma City and Memphis last week, scoring 14 points in each game. He then sat out the home loss to Sacramento. George might play over the weekend at home against Washington. And finally, England rugby is optimistic Marcus Smith will be back in the mix for the Six Nations clash against Ireland. The game takes place on March 9th, and the English are hopeful Alex Mitchell will also yet play a part in this year's championship. England were handed their first defeat in this year's championship against Scotland this past weekend. However, they will be boosted by the injury news around their two halfbacks. Smith has played no part so far this year after limping out of training with a calf injury. George Ford has started in all three contests in his place, with Finn Smith the deputy. Meanwhile, Mitchell started England's first two matches, but missed the Scotland defeat with a knee injury. Danny Kerr started at Murrayfield with Ben Spencer among the replacements. Thank you very much. That was Brandon Yates with Sports. Coming up in culture and entertainment, we have an updated version of a century-old book on the history of Taiwan. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. 60 minutes of comprehensive news. Your window on China and the world. 53 past the hour. In culture and entertainment now, here's Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. The Chinese mainland has released a new version of the general history of Taiwan, a history book that was first published more than 100 years ago. The three-volume book was written by Lian Han, a prominent poet and historian of Taiwan. It was the first publication to chronicle the history of Taiwan from the Sui dynasty around 600 AD to 1895. More than 20 experts from Taiwan and the Fujian province worked together to translate the book into modern Chinese. The new version signifies cross-strait academic cooperation to protect, pass on, and innovate the Chinese culture. It's available in both simplified and traditional Chinese character versions. TikTok's new streaming service is putting musicians front and center, starting with Mexico. Alistair Bevstock reports. Mexico City, where a K-pop music concert recently drew a sellout crowd to the capital's largest music venue. Twice, a nine-member Korean girl pop group has an enormous following on the other side of the Pacific, thanks mainly to the growth of another Asian export, TikTok. Dante Valenzuela, a TikTok user, has flown 1,600 kilometers from northeastern Mexico to be here. The culture around K-pop has grown enormously thanks to TikTok because of the content creation possibilities of dancing, singing and choreography as well as for beauty bloggers. I've even created special choreography posts for this show so people can dance in the crowd. Now, a new offering from one of the world's most popular social media platforms seeks to connect users directly with the tunes that are trending. This is TikTok Music, recently launched in Mexico. It's a very intuitive platform, especially for those who are already TikTok users. (laughs) By clicking on the music link within TikTok, users are directed straight to TikTok Music, a separate app which now competes directly with platforms like Spotify and Deezer, a French music streaming service. Users like Michael Favela have found TikTok Music to be an intuitive user experience. 
Just with a click on the video's music link, it takes you straight to the other app and the song itself, which was difficult to find before. Now it's much simpler, more minimalist. So it's easy for people to find the music they like, as well as discover new artists. It's my preferred platform. The app also comes with a number of unique features. Party mode, where multiple users are able to add to an ongoing playlist, and AI-powered recommendations, going by a user's tastes and TikTok content preferences. For music industry professionals like Jose Miranda, who count the number of listens their songs achieve on music platforms, the importance of TikTok in their promotion is only growing. A lot of DJs have become internationally famous thanks to TikTok, and a musical artist's objective is to generate listens. So if a platform that is making artists famous is now also generating an audience for their music, that's great. It's incredible that these two platforms will now go together. That was Alistair Bev's talk on TikTok's new streaming service featuring musicians. Singapore is holding the Hinua Food and Cultural Festival in March. Over 30 delicacies, desserts, and drinks will be available. All of these items are made with fresh ingredients from Putian in Fujian Province, China. Artists from Fujian will also perform a Putian opera during the festival. This art form has roots in the Tang and Song dynasties. And finally, Chinese and foreign journalists have visited the Chinese Archaeological Museum to examine key artifacts. They also attended a lecture on the origins, formation, and early development of Chinese civilization. Wang Wei of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences led the tour. Wang summarized the timeline and the characteristics of early civilization development. He also introduced the key regional cultures from different periods before answering questions from the journalists. Foreign journalists were particularly interested in the characteristics of Chinese civilization itself and its connection with other civilizations in the world. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China, and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports, and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China and the rest of the world. At 58 past the hour now. Check in the forecast before we go for the day. And、uh, Beijing's down to minus three on Wednesday evening. Thursday will be sunny with a high of six. Nanchang's down to four. Then a light rainfall in eight degrees. Elsewhere in Asia, Islamabad's at eight this evening. Then a slight rain in twenty on Thursday. Bintan's down to twenty-four degrees. Then sunny in thirty-five. Phnom Penh dips to twenty-three degrees, and then it's overcast in thirty-five. In Africa, Nairobi, you'll see a light rainfall with a high of twenty-nine degrees on Thursday. Is down to 20 degrees, then a light rainfall in 25. Juba is at 26 this evening, then cloudy and 41 degrees Celsius. That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today: there's cautious optimism for a ceasefire in Gaza, with the U.S. president saying that a deal is close. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Takeaway Chinese. Where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Take away Chinese. We will promise you a difference.
Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing. Roundtable. 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 Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Roundtable, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. From north to south, east to west, people in China are chasing their dreams and leaving their mark. Want to know how they beat the odds and made a difference? Footprints brings you the true life stories of their journeys. 